Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be talking to Tom Hennigan in Brazil about questions over the integrity of the corruption investigation known as Car Wash, which led to the jailing last year of former President Lula. His supporters say there is now evidence that the judge who convicted Lula was biased and that he should be immediately released from prison. But first this week, we're discussing the race to succeed Theresa May as leader of the British Conservative Party and indeed Prime Minister. There are now two candidates in the field, the former Foreign Minister Boris Johnson and the current holder of that post, Jeremy Hunt. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins me now from there. Dennis, is this election turning out to be a lot more interesting and a lot less straightforward for Boris Johnson than many thought would have been the case? Yes, it is. And I think for two reasons. One is that uh, Boris Johnson, he started off with this strategy where the, his handlers were keeping him hidden and refusing to take part in debates, not giving any interviews or very few interviews and particularly very few broadcast interviews. And uh, Jeremy Hunt was beavering about the place, basically trying to get some attention. What's happened since is two things, really. First is that on Friday night, this story emerged that on uh, early, in the early hours of Friday morning, police were called to a flat in South London that Boris Johnson shares with his girlfriend, Carrie Simons. And that this was because neighbours heard uh, a loud arguing and uh, Carrie Simons apparently shouting, get off me, uh, get out of my flat, and screaming and uh, smashing of plates. And the neighbours went and they knocked on the door a number of times, didn't get any answer. And then they called the police. The police arrived. They uh, satisfied themselves that uh, nothing had happened, that was no offence and that everybody was well. But the neighbours had recorded what they had heard coming from inside the flat and they gave that recording to the Guardian and they published the story. So this uh, became a big story and it obviously raised questions about, uh, you know, old questions about the nature of Boris Johnson's private life and something about his personality and his character. And the following day, he and Jeremy Hunt both appeared at hustings, the first of 16 hustings, before party members in Birmingham. And Johnson refused to answer any questions about this. He said, I've had a long-standing policy that I don't talk about any of these things. He just wouldn't talk about it at all, wouldn't address it. And then uh, the other thing which happened was that Jeremy Hunt performed rather better than anybody expected him to. He was very direct in answering questions. He was prepared to, uh, to make very clear positions on some issues that might upset some of the party base. So one was about HS2, a big high-speed rail project that cuts through a lot of Tory constituencies. And he said he was in favour of it. And he said he understood that was unpopular. And then he made a very eloquent defence of uh, gay and lesbian rights and the right and the, the, the fact that, uh, that uh, LGBT relationships ought to be taught in schools, which again is something that divides party members. So you had these two things going on at the same time, that Johnson's campaign appeared to be faltering a bit, and also that Hunt looks as if he's going to be a more aggressive and a more formidable opponent than I think anybody expected. And um, to go back to the row at, at that, the flat on Friday night, Dennis, there was, a, there was an odd sequel to that story when yesterday, Monday, a photograph suddenly appeared showing Boris Johnson and Carrie Simon sitting happily in a garden somewhere, no attribution as to where this photograph came from or whatever. Um, that has now become in some ways almost the focus of this story, hasn't it? Yeah, it's become a story in itself because the picture appeared on Mail Online. As you say, uh, no photo credit, as you normally would have in these, you know, the name of the photographer. And then it appeared on the front page of the uh, of the Evening Standard. And everybody was wondering, where did this picture come from? And then the other thing they noticed about it was that uh, his uh, Boris Johnson's hair 
uh, seemed to be much longer than it had been the previous day. So that, you know, the picture we were told was taken on Sunday and that this was supposed to indicate that uh, Johnson and Carrie Simons were uh, were all friends again and that was nothing wrong. And yet it looks as if the picture was old. So what people are asking now is, A, where did the picture come from? Did the uh, Johnson campaign decide to put it out into the public? And also, um, it, was it a bit of a fraud? Because was this picture taken weeks ago uh, rather than uh, rather than on Sunday? And he again, Boris Johnson, today on uh, a, a phone-in with, uh, with uh, listeners in an interview with Nick Ferrari and LBC Radio, he just refused to answer any questions about that in the same way as he refused to answer any questions about his personal life. Now, the media is having maybe strong to say good fun with the story because, I mean, it does raise legitimate questions about his character and so on. But there's clearly media interest in it. Is there any evidence that the conservative membership cares a toss about any of this? Well, I think there is some. I mean, it's anecdotal at this stage. I mean, there's certainly, I mean, there is actually not, that's not true because there is some polling evidence as well. There was one poll which was taken by the Mail on Sunday and they, they polled Conservative members on Thursday and then again on Saturday after this story had broken. And there was uh, you know, a fall in support for Boris Johnson, both in general and among uh, Conservative members. And so the gap between him and Jeremy Hunt shrunk from 27 points to 11 points. So there is some some uh, polling evidence, but it's just one poll. There's also some anecdotal evidence. I was speaking to a Conservative Party member uh, yesterday who's a Brexiteer who said to me, I, I don't like it. I just don't like this uh, sense of not knowing where he is at night, not knowing what's going on in his life, what are his financial arrangements. He hasn't completed his divorce. Uh, you know, so this sense of feeling a bit uncomfortable about uh, you know about just who are we putting into Downing Street and are there other surprises to come? I think that's one of the problems. I think the other problem is that the reaction to the story and the reaction to these accusations that he's hiding has meant that Boris Johnson is suddenly out on a media blitz. And he gave an interview to Laura Koonsberg and the BBC last night and two interviews this morning, one on LBC and one on talk radio. And they all demonstrated in a way why his handlers had wanted to keep him uh, hidden for so long. And it's because he doesn't really have very good answers to a lot of the important questions, not just about his private life, but also about what exactly he's going to do about Brexit, or at least what's he going to do when his plan doesn't work. And so when he's pressed on a number of uh, issues like Brexit, also say his tax plan, he unveiled this plan to give tax relief to people earning between 50,000 and 80,000 a year, pretty high earners. And he now seems to be rowing back a bit on that. And so he, uh, so I think it's had a, a number of effects that are bad. One is just the story itself. And the other is that it's discombobulated the campaign. And what it's done is uh, it's allowed Jeremy Hunt to look like, uh, in a way, the safer option, but also to, uh, to talk rather calmly about his own policies and to repeat over and over again his case for himself, which is that he's an entrepreneur, he's a good negotiator, he's somebody who would be better placed to get a deal from Brussels than Boris Johnson would. Now, you mentioned, Dennis, his interview with Laura Kunzberg of the BBC, which um, kind of took people by surprise last night because we didn't know the interview was coming, but he, he was possibly goaded into doing it by Jeremy Hunt, who had called him a coward for, for not you know, coming out and answering questions in the media. And he spoke about Brexit in that interview. I would make sure that we have a plan that will convince our European friends and partners that we are absolutely serious about coming out. And the key things that you've got to do are to take the, the bits of the, the current withdrawal agreement, which is, which is dead, take the bits that are, are serviceable and get them done. 
The important thing is that there should be an agreement that the solution of the border questions, the Irish border, the Northern Irish border questions, all those issues need to be tackled on the other side of October the 31st during what's called the implementation period. But the implementation and, period, as it stands, is part of the withdrawal agreement. Of course. And you said that you wouldn't sign up to withdrawal agreement and it's dead. That's so right. So those but two things both can't both be true. No, because you're going to need some kind of agreement, and that's certainly what I'm aiming for, in order, as you rightly say, Laura, to get an implementation period. Did we learn anything, Dennis, from the interview about how Boris Johnson plans to deliver on his promise to deliver Brexit by the 31st of October? No, we've learned that he's doubled down on that promise that he's going to leave by October the 31st, one way or another. What he hasn't been able to tell us is two things, really. One is, how is he going to get that through Parliament? How is he going to stop Parliament from stopping him from doing that? And there are two ways the Parliament can stop him. One is that uh, Parliament can force him to go and seek an extension to the Article 50 deadline, which then obviously it's up to the European Union to decide whether or not to give him. And another is that they could vote uh, a, a motion of no confidence in him. And a number of Conservative MPs in the last few days have said that they would vote against their own government, bring down their own government, rather than allow Boris Johnson to lead them into a no-deal Brexit against the wishes of Parliament. So we don't know uh, yet how he's going to deal with that. He just says he'd persuade people and that really people are not going to uh, risk putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. And he also hasn't really explained how he's going to persuade the European Union to tear up the withdrawal agreement and rip out the backstop and give him a better deal. He's also been suggesting that even if Britain left without a deal, that they could carry on with tariff-free access to the EU market, even without any deal at all. And he keeps quoting this uh, WTO, World Trade Organization rule called GATT 24. Uh, and he says that, you know, they, we'd be able to get a deal through that uh, or tariff-free access through that. But the fact is that today he had to admit that you you can only get that tariff-free access if uh, you're in the process of agreeing a deal with the European Union. In other words, if a free trade agreement is almost signed off, then you can get temporary measures which will allow you to trade free, uh, freely with this uh, other entity. And so he had to admit that anything he wants to do, like keeping the border in Ireland open or uh, getting tariff-free access to the EU market, that he has to have some kind of an agreement with the European Union to do that. So that under scrutiny, every part of his Brexit strategy seems to crumble. Now, um, as part of this media blitz you mentioned there, you, you mentioned in passing an interview he gave to Talk Radio. Uh, let's just hear a bit of that. What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? Uh, I, I, well, I like to paint um, or I make things. I like to... What do you make? I make... I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in like, well, Mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses. You make models of buses. I make models of buses. See, they're going to be do, in Downing Street. So, so what I do... No, what I do make models of buses, what I, I make is... I get, I get old, um, I don't know, cr wooden crates. Yeah. Right? And then I paint them. And they, uh, and they have two... two I suppose it's a, wine, it's a box that's been used to contain two, two wine bottles, right? Right. And it will have... A, a, a dividing thing. Yeah. And I turn it into a bus and I, so I, put, I put passengers 
You really want to know this? You're making, you the, you're I'm making make, buses. I'm, yeah, you're I making paint, cardboard I, buses. I paint, no, okay, I that's paint, what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves okay, great. on a wonderful bus. Great. Dennis, your analysis, please. Well, it's an unusual answer to that kind of question because usually, uh, as you know, when politicians are asked that kind of question, what do you do to relax? It's an excuse to make themselves seem more normal than they are. So they say, I like, you know, watching football, playing with my children, going for a run, uh, watching a box set or something they've never seen. Uh, in his case, he he came out with this extraordinary uh I don't know why, how to describe it really, because watching it, because you also have a video of this and listening to him, it wasn't clear, was he making this up as he went along? So did he actually uh, use these wine crates and paint them as buses and paint people in the seats enjoying themselves? Or was he simply spinning something because he couldn't think of anything else? Or was it actually something that he actually does do in his private life? Now, both are quite unusual. Neither is particularly, uh, you know, it doesn't say anything particularly bad about him. But it certainly, uh, it, it highlighted how unusual a person and how unusual a politician Boris Johnson is. And of course, that is both his strength and his weakness. There was a second question just immediately after that, where Ross Kempsell asked him, which character in history, uh, if he wasn't himself, would he like to have been? And then Ross Kempsell repeated, if you were not yourself, if you were not Boris Johnson. And so he said he'd like to be Pericles of Athens. And Pericles uh, not only built Athens up into a major military power, but he also had all these great uh, public projects in terms of building and in terms of the arts. And so he was a kind of a great sort of a patron and a strong leader uh, who was loved by his people. And as Johnson said, he actually coined the phrase for the many, not the few. So I think that is definitely a truthful answer. That is who he would like to be. And just his answer there, Dennis, on, on, on the buses and his hobby and so on. I mean, is it kind of pejorative to ask or to suggest? At times he sounded like a man there whose mind was not was almost unravelling. He certainly looks, uh, you know, he looks very, very tired and uh, and he looks under pressure. And I do think that one of the things which we've noticed about Boris Johnson now is that, uh, you know, this Boris Johnson is much older. He's 55. He's older than he was when he first came to prominence, when which was in his mid-30s or when he was mayor of London in his mid-40s. And, uh, and so he seems uh, in a number of his public appearances, although he's going through the same routine, he's using an awful lot of the same lines, it feels a bit more tired. And certainly after the last few days, uh, it would be unusual if he wasn't uh, just exhausted. Uh, one of the, 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 um, you know, the uh, questions going around Westminster today is if there are some interns in the uh, Boris Johnson uh, campaign team who are currently painting boxes uh, as bosses and painting all the people so they can produce them later at a press conference if they happen to be asked for you know for the evidence of all of this but it but certainly the you know both the, the the answer and the way in which he delivered it it does suggest this is certainly a man under pressure and so uh, he'll need to, to you know to somehow recover himself and to uh, you know to get the old magic back if he's to have a successful campaign having said all of that he is still you know the front runner by far really or considerably to win this contest because uh, he is much better known than Jeremy Hunt the trouble with Jeremy Hunt remains what the trouble with Jeremy Hunt always was which was which is that he's a bit dull and that he was uh, a remainer and that that the brexiteers who make up uh, the overwhelming majority of the conservative party membership many of them just don't trust him on brexit and again his problem when he starts saying that Boris Johnson's plan for brexit doesn't add up is that his 
this doesn't either, because what Jeremy Hunt is talking about is going over to Brussels, getting a better deal than Theresa May. And then on October 31st, uh, if there was no other option, he would get out. But if Parliament told him he had to stay, then he would stay and he would keep negotiating. And he doesn't really say until when. So you might not get out on October the 31st. You might not know when you got out. Maybe you don't get out. And yet he hasn't ruled out no deal. So, so neither of them really has a very credible plan for Brexit. And so you still would have to say that uh, this is Boris Johnson's to lose. But this week, it looks much more possible that he could lose it than it did last week. You referred, Dennis, in one of your analysis pieces to Hunt as Johnson's hand-picked opponent. Um, can you explain what you meant by that? During the uh, the first part of the campaign, when MPs were choosing between the candidates to choose two final uh, candidates to go forward, Boris Johnson was way ahead. And in the end, he won just over half of the MPs. But he was way ahead of all the others. And it's quite clear that during the last few days and the last few rounds of the uh, of the contest, that his supporters, or some of them, voted tactically so that uh, they would boost the chances of Jeremy Hunt and make sure that he wasn't, that Boris Johnson wasn't facing Michael Gove because Michael Gove uh, was a Brexiteer, uh, is a much more uh, gifted debater and a much tougher customer. And the Boris Johnson camp didn't want to uh, face Michael Gove. They've always consistently uh, felt that the best candidate for them to face was Jeremy Hunt. And it was really for those reasons, and particularly because of the fact that uh, he was a Remainer and that he just, he has, you know, he has none of the charisma that Boris Johnson has. And I suppose that, you know, for, you know the odd thing is that they may be regretting it now because Jeremy Hunt, first of all, is showing more grit, but also those very qualities, which are the opposite of uh, Boris Johnson, m- that he has, they may be actually what uh, Conservative members, if after a couple of weeks of all this drama, they're kind of tired of looking at it and they don't want to put chaos into Downing Street, they may just think that this guy who uh, is very polite and looks like a, his, their bank manager, that maybe they put him in instead. And he certainly, you know, that, that contrast has been remarkable in the opening days, hasn't it? You see Hunt, he looks really like a safe pair of hands and Boris looks like anything but. Yes, but, but Hunt is also uh, a very confident person. He's, uh, you know, he's certainly somebody who comes, uh, you know, he, he didn't go to Eton, but he went to another uh, very good school. His father was an admiral. He, uh, you know, he comes from, uh, you know, a very comfortable part of society. He's uh, the richest member of the cabinet. He sold a company that he built up, an educational company for 15 million pounds a, a couple of years ago. So he's, uh, you know, he's not, uh, you know, he, he's somebody who's quite comfortable in his own skin. And he's also quite steely and determined. And, you know, if you remember when he was health secretary, he was the longest serving health secretary. And he went through an awful lot of very difficult conflicts with uh, National Health Service staff, and notably this uh, junior doctors strike. He wanted to bring in a contract which would oblige the junior doctors to work more for not much more pay. And the public was overwhelmingly on the side of the junior doctors. They went on strike a number of times and he stood uh, firm and he won in the end. And then later when Theresa May wanted to move him to uh, become business secretary, he just said no and he just wouldn't move and he faced her down. And in the same way, uh, in his last uh, months as health secretary, he persuaded the government to give him an extra 20 billion for the health service. So he has, you know, although he's much more mild-mannered and much more polite than Boris Johnson, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's quite a tough customer in his, own, in his own quiet way. 
On some level, though, then, is it important almost for the future health of parliamentary democracy in Britain that Boris Johnson win, win this election? I know that's an odd proposition to put, but if Jeremy Hunt wins and then fails to deliver Brexit or fails to deliver a Brexit that's seen as a satisfactory Brexit, won't that add fuel to the argument of people like Nigel Farage and the populist right that the establishment will never give Britain the British people, what they want. They'll never allow the UK to leave the EU. Whereas if Boris Johnson fails, at least the Brexiteers then will own the failure. I think there's some truth in that, that, uh, you know, that, the, you know, that it's going to be... And, and in a way, that makes it uh, perhaps more possible that Boris Johnson would be able to get a deal. So, for example, if Boris Johnson went over to Brussels and got a fairly small change to the Brexit deal, he could, he'd could he have a better chance of coming back and selling it to the Brexiteers because the Brexiteers would be more reluctant to, to bring him down because he is the, you know one of their own and they would feel as if it was their last chance to have a Brexiteer prime minister because the next general election, there's a very good chance that the Labour would win it and and that, uh, and that would probably mean that you don't get Brexit because the Labour government, particularly if it depended on the SNP or the Liberal Democrats, would not be able to deliver Brexit whether they wanted to or not. So I think that that's, you know, I think that's certainly true. That uh, you know, but having said that, there is a, you know, there's another part though of the Johnson phenomenon which reminds me of Hillary Clinton a bit. That uh, you know, people talk about him as being Donald Trump, but actually sometimes, especially when he's playing it safe, he's looked a bit more like Hillary Clinton. And if you remember when Hillary Clinton uh, went for the presidency in 2008, a number of people you know, had said to her she should have gone in 2004 when John Kerry went for it and she held back. And that was kind of her moment. And then by the time she came around in 2008, somebody fresher came along in the shape of, uh, of um, Barack Obama. But already at that stage, even eight years before she, go, she went for it again, there was something tired about uh, her approach. People felt they'd seen this show before. And I have a feeling that there's a certain sense of that about Boris Johnson now, that he's just not quite the fresh, disruptive figure that he once was. And, and um, finally then, Dennis, the campaign from here, just remind us, how many more hustings will they both face in front of the party members? How many weeks are left in this campaign before well, there's, there's a vote? There's about 14 more hustings uh, around the country and there's going to be uh, uh, there will be one televised debate, at least, that we know of, which, uh, which they're both taking part in, and that's on ITV on the 9th of July. Then the uh, the, the ballots go out around the 6th or the 8th uh, of July. They'll all be back in by the 23rd or 22nd, which is a Monday, and they will be counted overnight. And then we'll know the results on uh, Tuesday, uh, the 23rd, and then probably you'll have your new Prime Minister uh, ready for Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday the 24th and then Parliament rises for the summer break on Thursday the 25th. Well, anyway, Dennis, listen, uh, you'll be continuing to provide lots of reports and analysis of the campaign over the weeks ahead and you can follow that on irishtimes.com. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks for that. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton in London. It's to Brazil now where an anti-corruption campaign known as Car Wash has, over the past five years, shaken the political and business establishment to its foundations. Among those caught on its net was the popular former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known simply as Lula, who is serving a nine-year sentence for corruption. Now questions are being raised about the integrity of the Car Wash investigation, which have turned the spotlight on the Minister for Justice, Sergio Moro, and triggered calls for Lula's release from prison. 
Tom Hennigan has been reporting on this story for the Irish Times and is on the line from Sao Paulo. Tom, could you start just by giving us a quick recap or primer, if you like, on the car wash investigation? When did it begin and just how deep and wide has it been? Um, It started on St. Patrick's Day in 2014 uh, as a kind of ordinary investigation into money laundering in the capital, Brasilia. Um, But investigators in looking into uh, this discovered a much deeper and broader web of corruption uh, linked to Brazil's state oil company, Petrobras, uh, which would be uh, the biggest uh, company in the country. And over the subsequent years, they've built up um, a, a number of cases against former executives in the company uh, of Petrobras, the contractors amongst them, some of the, the biggest construction companies, engineering firms in Brazil, um, and politicians. Uh, now, it has to be said, politicians of all parties, but initially the investigation um, focused on the then ruling Workers' Party, uh, which was um, at the time in power under President Dilma Rousseff, um, but a lot of the actual cases being investigated dated back to when her predecessor and the Workers' Party great icon Lula was president. And um, that uh, car wash investigation sparked a whole series of other uh, associated investigations in Brazil. So we've had this whole kind of culture of anti-corruption probes over recent years. But um, car wash was always the most important one. And running it was a federal judge in the southern city of Curitiba, Sergio Moro, who, different to Brazil's um, normal uh, kind of justice system, was very efficient and vigorous in in charging um, powerful people involved. And that led to his conviction of Lula, and the most high-profile conviction, one of hundreds that he handed down of Lula in 2017, which landed Lula in prison last year. Why is it called car wash, by the way? It's called car wash because the uh, initial investigation into a small money laundering ring centered on a petrol station in the capital, Brasilia, that had a car wash. And uh, all of these probes by the federal police are given kind of code names, which um, are often quite mediatic and get picked up and are widely used. So that's that's how uh, it got the name. And um, I think also just the the sort of the idea of of a uh, hosing down kind of stuck considering it was an anti anti corruption investigation now dozens of politicians and business people have been caught up in its net but as you mentioned there tom the most high profile of course has been lula who was brazil's president for 8 years from from 2003 until 2011 first president to have a working class support base and he's, he remains very popular to this day so what was he convicted of <sighs> So Lula um, faced uh, actually a number of different um, cases that that were brought against him for a variety of of, um, alleged crimes. The first one that he was convicted of related to benefits that he supposedly received from companies that were um, contractors of Petrobras and who were basically ripping off the company um, with the connivance of the people in charge of it, which was ultimately uh, the Brazilian government because it's a, a state-controlled company. And it was a beachside apartment, and not a very fancy one in a not a very exclusive resort or anything, but the case was that Lula um, had this apartment done up by companies as kind of like a perk for allowing them to run amok within Petrobras. 
So that was his first conviction. He's since been convicted in another case involving a country, um, a country retreat that was never in his name, but he and his family used, and uh, that again was uh, done up by the same companies. Uh, so that's the second conviction, and I think at last count he faces another seven um, cases being brought against him. And Tom, the judge who convicted him, you mentioned there, him there a moment ago, Sergio Moro. He's now the Minister for Justice. Now, before we just get to the the, the new controversy, if you like, how did uh, um, this respected judge who made his reputation, if you like, uh, rooting out corruption among the establishment, how did he end up being in the cabinet of the far-right president, Jerry Bolsonaro? Well, that's um, a very good question. And uh, why... Uh, he would accept uh, to serve in such a, a polemical um, uh, presidency um, for a man that has shown oh, through his 30-year career in public life nothing but disdain for democratic and civic norms. Um, Moro's defenders say it was because he realised that if there was going to be a systematic uh, reform in Brazil, to combat corruption, that really that had to happen from the executive side. And one can understand that, but uh, why you would um, try and do that in uh, the administration of someone who not only is um, a racist, misogynist, homophobe, and that's uh, well documented um, out of um, you know, uh, Bolsonaro's own mouth over, over three decades, but a family that has accusations of corruption levelled against it as well. And there's a live ongoing investigation into one of Bolsonaro's sons for um, corruption during his time as a city council or as a state council, um, a state deputy in Rio. So why, uh, why Moro decided that the Bolsonaro administration was the best way to do this is in doubt. Um, but it is, I think, was a realisation perhaps by him that he he could do only so much as a federal judge uh, in the in the car wash case, but he was still along with the other judges in a few other the anti corruption probes still kind of an outlier in Brazil's uh, justice system, which uh, Brazil has a very um, uh, how would I put it, a permissive legal code that gives a lot of legal advantages to people accused of corruption. And um, and it, the anti-corruption investigators lack the legal instruments uh, that they would have in other countries to go after powerful corrupt people. So it does seem to be that Mora decided, I've done enough as I can as a judge. I have this opportunity um, to to uh, implement systematic change from the executive. So I think that's the that's the argument to how he ended up serving for Bolsonaro. So why is Moro facing controversy now? Well, on the 9th of June, the Intercept Brazil website, which is a sister website of the Intercept website um, in the United States that was co-founded by um, the investigative journalist uh, Glenn Greenwald, who was very instrumental in the in the Snowden revelations, um, I think many people will remember, it started releasing conversations um, that took place on an, on the Telegram messaging app between Moro and the head federal prosecutor involved in the car wash investigation, and what they showed. Um, and more have subsequently come out. There was very close coordination in directing 
the investigation and defending the uh, the investigation from attacks from its enemies. And um, just to be clear, Tom, sorry, sorry for cutting in, but th these conversations took place at the time Moro was a judge. At the time, sorry, at the time Moro was a judge. So the conversations seem to go back to the very beginning of uh, the car wash investigation in 2014 and right up until I think the most recent ones to come out were uh, 2017. Um, now, the problem is, is that Moro was the judge overseeing this case and the prosecutors were the ones building the case that would, that would be brought before him. And a judge under um, Brazil's uh, constitution, the judge is not meant to help or advise either the, the prosecution or defense in a case that is that the judge will then gather in all the evidence, run the trial and offer a conviction. And what and what uh, Lula supporters and not just Lula, many of the other politicians uh, who have been caught up in the car wash investigation are now saying, look, this this just proves that he is a partial biased judge. He was out to get us. And I think also that has um, had a a greater substance to it, those claims, since Moro accepted a political position in the government of such a polemical figure like um, like President Jair Bolsonaro. So Moro has been accused of overstepping his constitutional limits as a judge, and uh, it, uh, the revelations have caused huge um, disquiet within Brazilian um, judicial circles as well as the political uh, world. Uh, he has tried to dismiss them as as nothing much. He says these sort of conversations happen all the time. That might well actually be true, but that doesn't mean that they are uh, legal or correct. Um, so he is caught up now in a, a controversy that at the at, 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 you know, there's an outside risk could or could unravel all of the car wash investigation. And how has Lula himself and, and his legal team responded to these revelations? Are they, are they now challenging his conviction in court? Well, they were already doing. Um, uh, they were already doing that. Um, and so, what what Lula's defence uh, did last year was file a habeas corpus and saying that during the um, the trial and Brazilian uh, the Brazilian uh, judicial system would be more like um, some of our um, European neighbours rather than. Um, you know, the trial that you would have in Ireland where everyone would gather in court over a few weeks and argue out the case. It tends to go on for years. The judge uh, often will be um, analysing information brought to him and um, questioning witnesses um, himself uh, as and when he calls them. Um, what Lula's team always said was that there were several instances during the case uh, that led to Lula's conviction in 2017 that showed Moro was biased against Lula. And so they were trying to get Moro removed from the case and um, Lula granted habeas corpus so he could leave prison. But uh, that, that case was filed last year. But um, a few weeks ago, they appended these leaks that the Intercept Brazil website got from inside the car wash investigation to their, uh, to their petition to reinforce it as if to, to say, basically, look, this is more information proving our case that we have a biased judge here and we should he should be let out. And I think there was due to be a hearing before the Supreme Court on this today, Tom, Tuesday. So the case was, well, this petition, uh, Lula's habeas corpus case uh, petition was first uh, being heard in December. 
by a five-judge panel of the Supreme Court. So there's 11 justices on the Supreme Court and there are two panels of five each that uh, they often farm out uh, cases to. So it was a five-member panel, two voted in December uh, to reject the the uh, the petition of Lula's defence. And then one of the other justices asked to review all the information, uh, which is quite common. This is a way that, that the court or, or individual members are able to delay making a decision and kick, kick the can down the road, so to speak. And that uh, delay was meant to end today, and the other three members were meant to cast their vote on the petition. That has now almost certainly been delayed again, and if it is delayed, it will be the earliest will be until after the winter um, judicial recess uh, before the case would be taken up again, which would be August. And I think the the widespread opinion is is that delay has happened because the five member panel itself is divided over over um, the whole car wash question. Some of the judges fervently support it. Other judges think that it has turned into a judicial witch hunt. Um, but they are also very aware that if there is a vote to release Lula, it would have enormous repercussions in wider society. Uh, Lula has great support still in certain sections of the population. They would be elated at him getting out. But as the recent elections uh, last year showed and um, opinion polls, car wash is still hugely popular amongst Brazilians. And if the Supreme Court, which is already a very discredited institution in Brazil, overruled the car wash conviction of Lula and set him loose, I think there would be a massive reaction by civil society against that and against the court. So their option was to kick the can down the road again. And has anything emerged, Tom, in all of this to suggest the evidence presented against Lula was, was suspect? I mean, is this a kind of a, a row over procedure or is the evidence itself in question? Well, the, there is not anything yet about questioning uh, the evidence that was used to convict um, either Lula or any of the other convictions. Now, the Intercept says that it has received a massive trove of information and that it is still processing it and that there is more to come out. So it could be further um, down the road that we will uh, see messages in some way that um, question the information um, that the evidence used. Um, now, it has to be said that Lula's team says the evidence was very fragile anyway, used to convict in this case, that there is actually little evidence involved. That's their argument. Um, that's not 100% true. There was um, there was evidence and um, there was also plea bargain deals by uh, the businesses involved in this reform, uh, uh, refurbishment of the apartment uh, that they said, look, this is what was going on. Um, so the the evidence itself has not been called into question. And I think it's also fair to say that if there was anything that called the evidence into question, the intercept would have been on straight away because that would be utterly devastating. Um, what the messages do show is that, uh, that Moro and the prosecutors were acting in a very political way to protect the investigation from other institutions and in the court of public opinion. And they might, uh, Moro, I think if these conversations uh, are true and he refuses to confirm that they are, I think that there is definite grounds to say he his uh, legal limits. The, the reality is is that uh, there, in previous corruption investigations in Brazil, these were all 
um, managed to be squashed by other institutions that had no interest in in them uh, bringing to light the realities of of Brazilian how Brazilian politics operated, and in front of an indifferent public who sort of felt like, well, you know, this is just how things are; nothing can be done. So Moro had reason to try and defend the car wash investigation, but it just might have been the means that he did it over overstepped his his uh, constitutional limits. Okay, Tom, while people, of course, can read more about this story, your piece on irishtimes.com. Thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.